do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and today my guest is waiting. He's waiting for you, and he'll take you one by one, and no one will hear you scream. No one will hear you scream. Welcome, Sean Hogan. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm slightly disappointed you didn't attempt the actual scream, but that was that was great otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I, my voice won't take me there, unfortunately, these <laughs> days. Um, what have you been up to? Busy. Um, uh, if if um, uh, everything I read on Facebook and whatever is to is to be believed, uh, you've got a new film. Yeah. Um, it. Uh, it's. I, this film didn't really kind of exist, hadn't been conceived of uh, as recently as the sort of tail end of last year. Um, and then all of a sudden, a um, friend of mine, uh, Kayla Janice, who um, people will know from her book, House of Psychotic Women, and her documentary on folk horror, approached me about the idea of... Originally, it was meant to be a short film, and then it kind of ballooned for reasons so um and then yeah so basically i sort of conceived of this film late last year wrote it very quickly uh we were shooting it by march it was finished by kind of may june and is now creeping out there into the world so it's the fastest i've ever made a film uh and it was kind of yeah it was a crazy thing to do we were sort of shooting at night out on the in, in the middle of nowhere in march with you know not very much in the way of money or resources so yeah it was kind of intense but seems to have turned out quite well so yeah well you know if you are making a, a folk horror then i would suggest that you, it needs to be filmed in the middle of nowhere yes, yeah. <laughs> i know even though you know and, the running gag on the set was when we were kind of you know, sitting out there at two in the morning waiting for it to stop raining so that we could start shooting again and sheltering in these, like, derelict stables. Um, you know, the running joke was, <laughs> Sean, next time, exterior Caribbean day, you know. And I was like, well, that's, that's not very folk horror. But... <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, but I have to say, I mean, the title, um, To Fire You Come At Last, I mean, that... That's just a fucking great title. Oh, thank you. That is, that is the, the that's folk horror squared. That is, isn't it? It's just amazing. It's the weird thing is, is um, so while I was while I was sort of in the process of making the film, I'd sort of say to people, oh, I'm, you know, in the in in the middle of doing this film project, and they say, "What's it called?" And I'd say, "To fire you come at last," and they just look at me blankly, and you know, I was like, "Well, I, I think it's a good title," and um, but I I think it's one of those titles that people have to see written down, and then they get more of a sense of it. Uh, if you just tell them what it is, uh, you get a lot of whizzical looks. But it's actually it's it's I was kind of searching around for titles and I it's I believe it's uh, a line from an old hymn that I paraphrase 
phrased slightly. Um, the line was to flames you come at last and I changed it to fire because it was a better title scanned better um, but yeah no I, the, the moment I, I found it I was like that's the title that's you know I, I always loved it um, but yeah it's an amazing title and I think I, when I first um, toyed with the idea of doing this uh, podcast um I don't think I'm going to do it, but I, one of the ideas I came up with was eventually, once it was established, I was going to do an episode. I was going to invite someone on and do an episode where we just just completely made up a film, just to see how many people would twig. Uh, and I think if if you'd not come up with this title, that's the kind of title I would have chosen for my made up film. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, obviously, as you say. Um, a lot of people may know you through, through your film work and things like that. But um, a lot of people, I mean, I first came across you because of your um, your screaming books. So, I mean, the, the two, obviously there are other kind of offshoots as well. But the two main ones at the moment being um, England's uh, Screaming and Twilight's Last Screaming. Uh, which, you know, again, it's one of those things where... I think I said that when when I reviewed it at the time, it's kind of like one of those things where when you're reading it, 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 the genius of it is, it's like, well, why the hell didn't I think of that? It seems obvious once it's been done, but you know, it takes someone like yourself to do it to say, do you want to, do you want to tell us about those books and what they are and how they sort of interconnect all these kind of um, horror webs and intricate sort of uh, characters? Yeah, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know the books, uh, so they, yeah, England Screaming, as you say, was was kind of the first one. Although I wrote a monograph on Deathline a few years before that, which kind of started the whole thing off, and still does kind of take place in the same universe as it turned out. Um, but yeah, England Screaming was kind of an idea I'd had for several years, uh, derived. I have to say, from a book called Suspects, which was published in the 1980s, which does a similar thing with film noir characters, which is a book I'd always loved. And I kind of thought, why can't you do this with horror ca characters? And the conceit is, is that you take all these different characters from different horror movies and you extend and intertwine their narratives so that it becomes this kind of unified theory of horror cinema. Um, but at the same time, it uses the films as kind of a lens through which to examine Britain as a country, what it means, what's happening here, what's, you know, just the whole concept of Britain. Um, and so is you know, has a lot of kind of satire and political commentary in it in that regard. And but hopefully, you know, it, it's a real mixture of kind of fiction and criticism. That's the intent anyway. Um, and then that that was a book I'd always kind of wanted to write, wasn't really sure that I ever would, and then finally found the time and the impetus to do it. It got released uh, during, like, right at the beginning of lockdown, so I kind of thought, okay, no one's ever going to read this book. Uh, and then it turned out people did, you know, because I think people were sitting at home without much to do, and it got good word of mouth, and so people started reading it. So I'd kind of finished the first book on a bit of a cliffhanger, not really 
thinking about whether I would ever actually continue it or not. And, then, and when that book did quite well, uh, I ended up sort of pitching a sequel, which was a similar thing, but in America, taking the story and but forward, but dealing with American genre cinema. And that ended up being this kind of mammoth book because I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to do America, I have to do it properly. And so, it, you know, it's just this whole big thing that goes back into the past of, of both America, the country and horror cinema. Um, and it's just this kind of big apocalyptic epic. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I've written a couple of other smaller associated sort of novella type books as well, which one of which deals with sort of Euro horror, one of which deals with Australian genre cinema. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of been what I've been doing for the last few years, essentially because I reached a point where I'd been working on a, a different film for about a year and kept hearing that it was going to happen, that everyone loved the script and wanted to do it. And then after a year's work, it suddenly didn't happen. And I just got so fed up with everything. I just kind of said, I'm done with this for the foreseeable future. And I'm going to go and write a book instead, which is what I did. And then I ended up writing four books. So yes. Um, so, but now, you know, it's, it's nice to be back making a film as well. Although I'm, I'm glad I've done the book thing and I still have a, monthly patreon that can kind of continues the the sort of um the style of those books um and you know who knows i may do more in the future i know i don't know yet i think what i mean it kind of I, I think it's interesting that it, you know like you say the first one coincided with lockdown and i think it was you know that was one of the things that kind of uh, made my lockdown if you like obviously it was a really grim time but it was those kind of things that came up but certainly england screaming i i remember um because i i reviewed it for uh, i think diabolique magazine at the time yeah. and 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 you know so i got my sort of free copy and i was re it and it just blew me away and I, it it just and i think what i love about both that and twilight's last screaming is that it's not you know it's very intricate um and it also it doesn't just rely on the big hitters although you don't avoid the big hitters either but it it, it does go you know more obscure and also brings in characters from films that we wouldn't necessarily traditionally see as horror characters or horror films and i think in terms of creating that broader network uh, of linking these genres and these films together it's it's just i i can't i li literally i mean i've reviewed both books uh I, I can't recommend them enough absolutely incredible really really brilliant read if you like your horror stuff and you like these these connections and things that are rooted within the the country that they're they're sort of um, created in then you will absolutely love these books absolutely brilliant stuff oh thank you um, so Sean, where now? I I ask this of all my guests. Um, what what was your entry point into horror? Um, I was just one of those kids that naturally gravitated towards it. Um, uh, it I don't really know why. Uh, you know, my my mum thinks there's something kind of deeply wrong with me and doesn't really understand why I turned out this way, but <laughs> I was just, you know, immediately attracted initially to kind of monsters, I, you know, probably the first gateway film for me was the original King Kong. And then I sort of gravitated very quickly towards sort of 
horror full stop um you know it was that i was a kid in the early in the 70s which was a very kind of horror monster orientated time anyway and the sort of stuff kids were exposed to then now looks kind of quite surprising in you know these days um so it was definitely kind of more in the atmosphere um but you know luckily my dad was quite happy to kind of sit up with me and watch late night horror movies watch the sort of hammers and universals and stuff on late night tv so that was kind of my gateway really and then you know very quickly uh another thing at the time because it was it was obviously just so prevalent in that time were these big sort of coffee table books all about horror movies that had full color photos in and everything uh and those were just always on sale in wh smiths or whatever and i rapidly got obsessed by those and you know had some neighbors kids who were i had a whole set of them and i was like oh my god i've never seen anything like it so i started collecting them myself so yeah it was just it just seemed very natural for me um and I, I mean, they they just come up again and again. Those the, the Alan Frank yeah. books and the Dennis Gifford books and those horror double bills. I mean, they they were just such a a key entry point to a lot of people. Oh, pe- people of a certain age, I, I would say. You know. Yeah, I mean, it was just. I suppose I don't know whether now horror's just kind of more inescapable, and it's kind of everywhere and feels a bit more mainstream. Whereas then it was still a bit more of a dirty little secret, but you had these little kind of gateways, such as the late night double bills and all this sort of thing, which were a real kind of cultural touchstone for, you know, my sort of generation. Um, And yeah, it felt a bit more tucked away, a bit hidden. But once you once you found it, you were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, especially those 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 BBC Two double bills that went on for a number of yeah. years, from the early seventies right through to the nineties with Doctor Terror, really. And then obviously, you kind of got a version of that with Movie Drome as well. You know, later on. Yes, but, which um, was equally a yeah, big they, thing they for me just... in a different way. But yeah, yeah, that was it was just the way that TV used to actually, you know, provide you with something. It was it was kind of an education in a way for you know kids who are into that kind of thing. It is, and I definitely was, you know, uh, movie drone especially. Uh, I mean, because, um, and again, we'll say this again and again, but um, I'm not, I am not bemoaning the age of streaming or anything like that. You know, I think it's great that there is instant access to a lot of this stuff. Um, however, I think what is lacking is this sense of curation. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think it, that movie drone was obviously curated by someone who was obsessed with films. You know, first, you know, Alex Cox and then Mark Cousins. It was, you know, and even those BBC Two late night double bills, I didn't really get the feeling that they were just plonked on. It felt like someone was thinking about the order of these things, you know, especially the early sort of double bills. You know, they were starting off with like Caligari and things like that and and going through. So, yeah, and, and again, you know, if you're growing up where you only have three channels that is that sounds like a massive limitation from a modern point of view but actually what that does is open up new worlds because if you know if you know if you, if you were sitting if you are offered a 24-hour cartoon channel as a kid you'd watch that but if if you aren't as we weren't 
So uh, you will sit and watch a Marilyn Monroe film and that will let, make you less wary of other black and white films. So then, you know, yeah, it opens totally. up a whole new Yeah, thing. I mean, that was, that was never a question for me as a kid. You know, I, I started watching horror movies. Some of them were in black and white. That wasn't really a problem. It was like some of them I didn't get. It's, you know, one of my, my formative memories of those double bills was watching the the double bill of the seventh victim and race with the devil now seventh victim at the time was completely lost on me as a kid because it was just too slow mm. too subtle uh and i didn't necessarily have a problem with black and white films but that was one which went a bit over my head which i love now but you know when i was seven or eight or whatever it was a bit a, a bit beyond me but race with the devil absolutely like freaked the hell out of me you know that was a that was a real experience for me watching that film as a kid and you know, and still a film I enjoy now. But yeah, I just that was such vivid memories of when and where it was when I saw that. Yeah, I I, I think you know I've kind of similar memories. Memories, you know, watching uh, the Devil Rides Out for the first time, and the you know the appearance of the devil in that is just something so eerie about it you know it's in the middle of this kind of adventure action film with christopher lee all these people you kind of knew and recognize and then you've got this really brilliant scene which is genuinely you know still disturbing now i think it's yeah. a great 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 scene so uh, yeah, yeah yeah i i i think that you know a lot of people will have the similar experience really um any other entry points into horror any other key sort of aspects for you well the i guess the other big thing for me was and i you know i was already well into horror at this point uh and as you know as well as the sort of uh that kind of golden age of kind of 80s horror literature you know again i sort of started reading that stuff when i was way way too young so i sort of started reading james herbert first then quickly got into stephen king and that was a kind of a transformative thing for me as well but the other thing that happened was my family, because um, of my dad's work, we moved to Hong Kong when I was 11, um, which was obviously a real upheaval for a kid. But what I rapidly figured out was that there was no age classification in Hong Kong. So as well as being able to rent anything I wanted from the video library, which were all completely uncut and all the sort of titles that were quickly being banned over here, uh, I could go and see anything at the cinema as well. So that sort of period, which was mid eighties was my, with my real kind of education in like the next level of horror. It's sort of like, I was kind of well-versed in hammers and the universals by that point, but now I really got a chance to see, okay, what's happening now. And obviously a lot of that stuff just blew my tiny mind. Cause it was, you know, obviously full on gore and weirdness and, you know, all the stuff that I would never have been allowed <laughs> to watch at home really. Yeah, I I can't not I'm not comparing my experience to that. I wasn't in Hong Kong or anything, but I remember vividly remember I was about eleven or twelve, I think, and I was at my mate's house, and uh, he was one of the first kids to have a video recorder, and we sat around there with me and him and his dad, and his dad put a Cannibal Holocaust on. You know the uncut version of Cannibal Holocaust, and I remember sitting there, just, just, you know, just disturbed, just traumatized. And I always remember what made it even never not disturbing. So you know, well, what what made it even worse was that my my friend's dad said to me at the end. 
don't tell your dad I let you watch this. And it's just like, oh, God, I can't even tell anybody. <laughs> oh, I yeah, still, I, I still I, have I, I massive problems with that film. I don't know what I would have made of that when I was a kid. I, did, I, I don't think I saw Holocaust until probably I was about 16 oh. or so, but yeah. <laughs> It's a fucking grim film. I, I'm hoping that none of my guests choose that film because I'm going to struggle with <laughs> I, it. I, I, it's one of those films, you know, I own the uncut Blu-ray of it. It's one of those films yeah, that me too. Um, I, I feel the need to own. I don't feel a need to re-watch it very often, but I had to re-watch it fairly recently because I wrote an essay uh, on it. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's still as fucked up as it always was. It's one of those, it just never loses that. <laughs> it, it's just, it will always be as just massively disturbing it doesn't lose that potency with time yeah yeah i, I mean i always make the obvious comparison to me because you can do sort of animal cruelty in a film and make a point you know i think yeah i think ted kocheff did that with uh perfectly well with waking fright you know and it was kind of done with the consent of animal welfare charities to show the barbarity of you know kangaroo hunts but there's nothing to be learned from a cannibal holocaust no Absolutely it's just this, it's just this kind of moral vacancy at the core of that film you oh. know <laughs> but part i mean but the, 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 the thing about that is it, it, the soundtrack is fucking great and parts of it look amazing. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, actually, it's really I mean, brilliantly directed. Uh, I, I remember going to a wedding where they, the, the bride walked down the aisle to the to the Holocaust <laughs> soundtrack. Obviously, they knew full well what they were doing, but I, I imagine a lot of people at the wedding just thought, "Oh, this is a lovely piece of music," and I was kind of sat at the back. Going, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of those Italian films, I mean, I, I love them to bits, but it's kind of like the worse the title is or, or the gorier, the, the, the sweeter the yes, music yeah. is. It's... Autopsy, that Ennio, Ennio Morricone soundtrack to Autopsy is beautiful, <laughs> you know, but it's... It... Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, I think it's about time to introduce the film. The film that we're going to be looking at today is from 1973, Messiah, Messiah of Evil, directed by Willard Hike and written by Gloria Katz. They're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. <laughs> So, Sean, when was the first time you came across this film? Um, I it was I probably saw this relatively late on. Uh, it's not a film that's was sort of been widely available for a long time and I was aware of it I'd read about it in um, Kim Newman's Nightmare movies but didn't actually get around to seeing it probably within the last 10 years I think the, it was the first time I saw it and I think even the first time I saw it it didn't really click for me I just thought well that this is an odd little film and didn't really quite know what to make of it and it's one of those films that 
the second time I watched it, it kind of fell into place much more. And every time I've watched it since, it sort of gains for me. But it's such a it's such an eccentric little film that if you come to it unprepared, you can be a really I think you can be quite thrown by it. I showed it to a friend not that long ago, and he was kind of similarly perplexed <laughs> on a first viewing. You know, I maybe maybe it'll improve if he watches it again. I don't know. It, well, I'm, I, I guess. Uh, I mean, I came to it. I, I am being mass, you know, massively honest now. You know, I can pretend to be cool and think I've been into this film for years. I hadn't. Uh, it was li- literally when you said, you know, when I invited you on and said, "What film do you want to pick?" and you was like, "Messiah of Evil." I was like, oh, "That's really not come across my desk before." So I went and I accessed it at that point, and I've watched it twice now, and I. I it's I think it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a brilliant film to be introduced to, and I think it's um, but it, it's one of those films where you, it, it's it's almost impossible to explain. Yeah. Uh, you you literally have to um, experience it to understand it because what you cannot avoid talking about when we talk about this film is the the creepiness and the atmosphere uh, and what it, it it it's there are brilliant scenes in it which we'll get to later but it's it's just this over uh this just this this feeling that won't go away when you're watching it it's one of those films where you almost need a shower after you finish watching it it's just there's something you can't necessarily put your finger on it feels as though it belongs in the same universe as carnival of souls it feels like we're you know this this could be linked to that it's it also i think the other thing about it is it feels like very proto stephen king um you know it's obviously stephen king was work i think he was working on carrie the same year this film came out but it's kind of feels it's got some of those vibes as well the kind of salem's lot sort town of, going weird or thing. Yeah. The, yeah it it's 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 it has a lot of, and obviously you got the seaside setting and the sea as well it's just a very haunting disturbing strange film yeah i mean it's one of the things i think as as i've got older one of the things i've sort of come to appreciate more in in horror cinema is is that kind of atmosphere and that sort of sense of slowly building dread you know, um, maybe when you're younger, you sort of want a bit more in the way of story or plot. But I kind of find myself less and less interested in that. I mean, I can still appreciate a good yeah. story, but so- sometimes I'm happy just to sit back and kind of luxuriate in a, in a film that has this kind of spellbindingly weird mood, which I think Sorrow of Evil has in spades. It's like it really if you look at the plot of the film it's kind of nothing much she comes to this small coastal town looking for her dad and she basically just kind of like wanders around meeting weird people for the whole film and then you have this kind of vaguely apocalyptic ending but there really isn't much story to speak of and i have to say it doesn't bother me at all no i i I agree and i think i'll say this i think even as i get older and older i i I will take style over substance any day. I, I in terms of cinema, I, just, I if something can just keep me occupied, not through some sort of well-structured story, but through atmospherics 
and creepiness and strangeness and some sort some sort kind of feel of the off kilter and and be placed into a world that i don't fully understand i'd rather have that from a horror film you know give me something like field in england or messiah and messiah uh, of evil the these films that you know we you we're never going to get any answers you know yeah. we don't we're watching these films we're not going to be provided with answers that and i know that that drives people some people crazy yeah and that's partly why I am attracted to films like that because I know they're going to drive people crazy. Yeah, it's, I, and I, I don't even think it's quite style over substance necessary. I, I feel like there is a substance to this kind yes. of thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, but it's not obvious. It's not making any like broad strokes points or anything like that. But it's in the sense that it's creating a, a different world and atmosphere and kind of enveloping you in this sort of other place, there does feel as though there's something substantial in that, even though it's not something I can kind of explain and say, well, this is why it's substantial, but you know, neither do I feel as though it's kind of entirely style over style over substance. Yeah, I mean, obviously there, there's stuff going on, and but I think it's that, like you said, it's not we're not spoon fed. We're not. We're, it's not being pointed out. It's not being underlined. It's just we know that there's something odd, and I think you know, in a lot of ways, you could, uh, you know, make this sort of more obvious point of it, saying something about small town America or America in general, and this feeling of the outsider being pushed to the limits of. Of this strain you know there's a lot of stuff in there but i i guess what i mean by style over substance is that um you know in the same way that i respond favorably to films by dario argento i'm not i'm not going in with a to a dario if you're going into a dario argento film expecting a well-structured sure, yeah, narrative yeah, then you're yeah. going to be disappointed yeah. you know so it's kind of like um i i'm always kind of i i always i i always I'm always more at home with films yeah. like this, I think, than films that are trying to ram a, 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 a well-structured story at me. And, and they can work as well. You know, Jaws is an incredibly well-structured narrative and it's brilliant, you know. But um, but I like feeling a little bit lost yes. in film as well. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, yeah, this, uh, you know, this film feels very, to me, as sort of like proto-David Lynch. Lynch is a director that I yes. love a lot. And again, it's sort of like... I, you know, I can't sit down and give you a precy of what Lynch's films are about, but they absolutely feel substantial to me. They're they're thoughtful, even if you can't explain them. And I feel the same is true of Messiah of Evil. Yeah, I, I, and you know, Lynch makes the films he wants to make, and I don't think he has any desire or need to explain them. And I think, fortunately for him, he's got a million. Uh, film critics to do it for him <laughs> so whether he agrees <laughs> yeah. with their assessments they they will do that somebody will offer some sort of a assessment of what his films are about um yeah but i i i don't necessarily care i i don't i don't know i i don't have to know what something's about i just like the way it makes me feel and i look and you know again with this film i don't you can't really get around the fact that it's just such a a, a brilliant aesthetic yeah. it looks yeah. incredible and and i've never really understood this thing about films either being dated or timeless i don't really get concepts like that because i don't 
this is this is un- unquestionably a 70s film but i i don't care because it looks incredible yeah. and i like that early 70s aesthetic i don't want an early 70s film to feel timeless i want it to feel like it's lost in that graininess that grottiness of that era and this is completely lost in that you know i don't want an italian giallo from the late 60s to feel timeless i want it to feel like a, a dirty 60s exploitation stroke horror film absolutely i mean you know not to sound like someone completely moored in the past or anything like that but you know i do sometimes look at 70s cinema and think that we've kind of lost something because with this sort of rush to sleep for in technological improvement and you know move transitioning into digital from film it's like stuff a lot of stuff now looks too clean to me and it looks over processed yeah. and you know just over graded in the computer whereas like the 70s films have like a tangible quality to them that i think a lot of modern stuff doesn't and you can still achieve it but you have to kind of know what you're setting out to achieve i mean it was something just sort of going back to the to the, to my new film it was something we were very conscious of and i was like look i want to like scuff up we're shooting digitally because you know frankly if you're on a budget these days it's the only way to go but i was like i i don't want it to look too clean and too crisp and you know we shot black and white but i was like that's not enough we have to kind of scuff it up a bit as well we you know we ended up adding grain and stuff like that not to not to pretend that it was shot on film, but just to give it more of a kind of the same sort of tangible quality that an older film would have. Um, and and yeah. that's what I love about 70s cinema. It just feels organic to me in a way a lot of newer films don't. And that just gives it an immediacy, I think, which certain newer genre films lack sometimes. Um, okay, Sean. So, what? Um, this is uh, obviously put together by uh, husband and wife team Willard Hike and Gloria Katz. Um, what? What do you know about them, and what? What's your kind of understanding of their work? I mean, obviously, they were kind of part of what would become the new Hollywood. Um, you know, they were close collaborators with George Lucas um yeah. they'd already been working on american graffiti i believe when they had the chance to make messiah of evil they'd already been working on the script and then they kind of went off to make messiah of evil and then came back to work on it yeah that's right um, it was a bit i mean american graffiti from what i understand was a bit of a shit show in terms of the production there was lots of which tends to be the case when George Lucas is involved, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think American Graffiti... I mean, obviously, no one's complaining. He made a lot of money, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was a bit of a shit show when they were putting it together, I think. So I'm not surprised they got out halfway through and uh, did something else in the meantime. Well, I think I think they were they, they were also just offered offered the opportunity to go and direct a movie. So it's sort of like, you know, what are you going to do? I think George Lucas gave them his blessing and said, go and make your movie. And um, yeah, it just so happened that he hadn't pulled American Graffiti back together by the time they finished. So they came back on. Um, so, yes, they did that. They worked on Temple of Doom. Um, you know, I mean, this is a very sort of proto new Hollywood film overall. You know, you've you've got a cameo from Walter Hill in the opening scene. He's the guy that gets killed in the opening scene. 
Uh, you've got people like Jack Fisk and Billy Weber worked on it. They were both went on to Badlands, which is kind of a seminal new Hollywood movie. Jack Fisk, obviously, the production designed a hell of a lot of great movies over the years. Still is. Um, so yeah, this is this is very much kind of a you know an indie film. People breaking in from the margins who would go on to do much bigger, better known films. Um, I think the thing is with with Willard Hike and Gloria Katz is that they were not necessarily that interested in horror and have sometimes been quite disparaging about this film over the years. Um, you know, they, it was the kind of age-old story of they wanted to make something, they wanted to break into directing and horror was considered an easy way in, in the way it still very much is now. Um, but... Whereas I think sometimes that leads to people making horror films who don't understand the genre and kind of just cynically rehash old ideas and all this kind of thing. Sometimes it can work in your favor because you can get something quite distinctive because the people are influenced by stuff that isn't horror. And that way you get a sort of merging of new things and it brings in new ideas to the genre and that help keeps it fresh and I think that's very much what happened here you've got people who are sort of fusing art house cinema the sort of stuff they were interested in as film students that kind of whole European explosion of, of art house movies in the 60s which was stuff they obviously grew up watching and they kind of bring that into making a horror movie which gives Messiah of Evil such a distinctive feel yeah, I, I, I think. I mean, the sense I get with them I, I, is this. I, I think because because what we forget is that w when we're watching things and they're kind of cool or strange or weird, that that's always the intention. But I think really, for most filmmakers, particularly at that that time, they were trying to make films that would hopefully be popular or or, or well received at the box office. Um, I, I, but I think if if but the other side of that is is that often if you start off wanting to make something strange, I'm not saying it can't work, but sometimes it goes very wrong and you end yes. up with something a bit more tired. I think it's it's they it's the kind of directors or creatives that end up creating something that becomes cool or weird unintentionally. They are often the most interesting because it's like i always compare it um i really like sounds like i'm going off on a massive tangent but i i really like the band abba you know nice. I, I i think abba have a really they are odd because you know everybody sees them as this kind of cheesy throwaway thing but they are incredible musicians and i think what they were trying to do is be a kind of 70s glam band and they kind of got it slightly wrong. <laughs> and, and they bought all these kind of Nordic influences, these Scandinavian influences, which make it much more of a darker proposition. Yeah. If you listen to something like Dancing Queen, the, the lyrics are very up, but it's layered over these kind of minor chords, which makes it very odd. Um, you know, Black Sabbath, were in, they were just wanting to be a blues band and got it slightly wrong and ended up inventing heavy metal, you know. I, I think there's a lot of that going on. You know, people might, mo you know, obviously something like Temple of Doom is very, uh, 
is a mainstream film, about as mainstream as you can get. But if you kind of separate it out from the rest of that franchise, it's a really fucking strange film. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Of st- it's the closest to a weird sort of hammer horror kind of film. It it's it, it feels very separate from the rest of the cycle, I think. And you know, and whether you like it or not, Howard the Duck, you know, that is uh whatever you want to say about it there is no other film like it it is sure. a very yeah. strange film. yeah i mean this is the, the i mean it's basically this is the counterculture kind of bleeding into the mainstream and like see so sometimes it throws up these real anomalies you've got people who are allowed to bring in this weird stuff which they were probably enabled to do because they were working with george lucas who's basically you know the big gorilla who's going to let them you know stop studios from <laughs> taking all this weird stuff out then you get this kind of eccentricity bleeding into what is supposedly mainstream fare. Yeah, I I, I do. Yeah, Uh, it fascinates me really as to what people's mindsets are when they set set off on working on a project. I mean, you know, at the same time, I don't don't know and and I'll never find out. But I think you can... There, whatever was the intention for Messiah of Evil, what it does is create something. It is, it's the classic um, example of the uncanny. That is this film, from from start yeah. to finish. It is uncanny. It's not trying to explain anything to you. It's not trying to sell you anything. It's simply dropping you into something which is beyond most people's understanding it's just there in the same way that carnival of souls it's it we don't really know what's going on and and this film could be this or this or whatever but what it does is make us feel slightly strange or off or 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 you know we are looking at the world through um a, a, a slightly tilted camera sure absolutely um yeah i mean i think there's a, we should make the point that actually this film was never properly finished uh that mm. they only did the first cut of the movie there were portions of it that were never shot and the film was finished by the investors so it has this kind of elliptical slightly disjointed feel which i think really works for it it helps it feel more dreamlike would it be as effective if it had been finished the way they wanted it to be? I don't know. You know, this might be just one of those happy accidents where it doesn't matter that they didn't get to finish the film because what was there works, you know. Um, but as you know, as you kind of uh, suggested, sometimes with films, especially with first films, people's inexperience can sometimes lead to very interesting results. The, the sense that they don't quite know what they're doing and that has interesting consequences because you're doing stuff that maybe you shouldn't do according to the textbook but sometimes it can click and really work and i think that's that's the case with this film and it's very much the case with um death line which is another film i love which i've written about which i think in a in a different way has a similar kind of quality there are things in death line that shouldn't work The, the the way it's written the way it's constructed there's all sorts of like absolute no-nos in terms of how you approach writing a screenplay and yet it works brilliantly because of just you know this particular fusion of elements and i think the same is true of messiah of evil i think the other thing about it that um even if it was kind of tagged on because as you say it was never completely finished 
um the 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 fact that it it kind of bookends with it starts in an asylum and finishes in an asylum and and i i i've always liked I've dug that when when films do that I like that you know there's a lot of films I could but it, it kind of ties in um because it's got the same sort of bookend in his cabinet of Dr Caligari you know obviously that that starts and finishes in a lunatic asylum but also uh, uh, as well as that um, it, the other thing it's kind of got in common with uh, cabinet of Dr Caligari is its use of art and it 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 uses um canvases and giant pieces of art to almost kind of throw you in the same way that cabinet dr caligari does it creates false perspectives you know there's the there's a big scene in the background where there's like a, an escalator or a stick and it's and for a while you 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 think that's part of the the set but actually no it's a canvas and it's it, it really plays we, I mean, I, I, I suppose you'll you'll notice these things more when we get a nice crisp, crisp Blu-ray coming out. But obviously, I was watching it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot in there which are, you know, kind of, um, yeah. you know, it, it, uh, there is that kind. It does use kind of artworks, these kind of violent, weird sort of pieces of art to actually to to disorient you. No, I, I mean the the use of murals like specifically in her father's home is a brilliantly eerie and very cost-effective piece of production design, which is, you know, didn't, wouldn't have cost very much at all, but is, you know, hugely atmospheric because it gives you a feeling that she's always being watched. The main character is always yes. being spied upon. There are figures constantly lurking around her and it is very disconcerting. Because it doesn't, it honestly doesn't really matter if you see it on a clean print or not. It still works because there are always these figures in the background. It's a really, really brilliant piece of production design, um, and uh, you know the art, the use of art in it in general. Um, I think that's partly a very sort of pop art thing, which was obviously huge at the time. Yeah. Um, I think it's also kind of very Godardian. Um, it seems there are, seems to me there are a couple of very definite Goddard nods in there. Her father yeah, dowsing yeah. himself in blue paint at the end is it feels very Piero Lefou. Um, so again, yeah, it's just this sort of m mixture of uh, out elements from outside the genre that they're kind of dragging in to this genre piece, and it makes something new. What do you think about the casting and the characters? So it's one of those films that has a kind of very eccentric oddball cast and they're not all necessarily giving great performances but they have this quirky pitch to them that gives this film a very distinctive feeling. Um I mean, you know, I think I think Marianne Hill's a great presence. Um I think I believe she was basically cast because uh, Willard Hike liked that she'd been in a Howard Hawks movie um, and she she sort of went on to have you know like had a few supporting roles in like High Plains Drifter and Godfather 2 but she's got it she's definitely got kind of a look um, yeah you know um, and, a, a, and, a, and a film like this which is very much about striking visuals it's kind of like you want actors with great faces and she has a great face 
Uh, I mean, so you've got Michael Greer, who was a, a, a drag artist, I believe. This was his first kind of straight role. Uh, you know, I'm not sure you'd call him a great actor, but again, he has this very eccentric presence, which which I think really works. Yeah, presence is definitely the word. He he is yeah, very odd presence on yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, you've got Joy Bang, who's like a bit of a. <laughs> Very, very, very cult <laughs> Just, icon now, oh. you know, had this very brief career, but was in a bunch of really interesting films during that, you yes. know, career like Cisco Pike and Dealing and this film, you know, uh, I think Roger Ebert interviewed her at one point. It thought she was going to be this big star, which never quite happened. But there's there's definitely a sort of a Joy very Bang small is Joy just, Bang just cult the... now. The best name yes. ever is just amazing. She, she, for those that don't know, I mean, at the time when she made this film, I would describe her as looking. She kind of looks like the 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 love child of Susie Quattro and Keith Chegwin. It's just <laughs> she's got this kind of impish, and and you would imagine with a name like Joy Bang, she she she'd have been in a host of kind of sexploitation. Pe- I think she was only in kind of one sexploitation film, but yeah, it's just a. Uh, uh, I mean, she's in one of the best scenes in the film, which we'll come back yeah. to uh, slightly later. But yeah, yeah, I, I, it, it, like you said, I think most of the cast—they're not. It's not like they are incredible actors. Although I'm sure if you know you stretch them, they'd they'd be fine. But it's just that, you know, it again, like Carnival of Souls. You know, no one's going to accuse the cast of Carnival of Souls of being, um, you know, Shakespearean actors. But they they are perfect. For that film because they fit with the disjointed feel of it and it's exactly the same with this film yeah i mean you you know you do have a couple of the kind of old hollywood pros coming in you've got you know yes. alicia cook jr who's like once again playing the crazy old drunk guy who sees everything that's really going on and no one believes him um you know as he does in salem's lot and electric glide in blue and all the, you know all these other films and then you've got royal dano who's like brings this kind of gravitas to it uh, and didn't want to be in the film, but um, I believe their their friend Matthew Robbins, he'd been in his student film and he persuaded him to appear in it. I don't think he really kind of understood what the hell was going on. But again, he's kind of got that old school gravitas that you sort of need for his kind of narration and when he sort of shows up for the pivotal scene when he, you know, when he comes back. Um, so you do have a kind of couple of old pros in there who really deliver. They know, yeah, yeah. They, they know full well what they're doing and they give it their all. But yeah, it's just sort of like a weird mixture. That now, I mean, we can't really talk about this film without um, going in. I just think that there, there are some key scenes, uh, but but broader than that, I think there are just some really interesting decisions that they do in this this film, and and, and things that one of the i think one of the interesting decisions is and this could have been a fluke it could have been just whoever turned up at the casting i don't know but it's the uh the casting of uh bernie robinson as the albino trucker yes. and and just that is it's just a, a mental it's kind of like i mean i'm sure the guy was absolutely lovely in real life yeah. but he just creates such a weird presence and the fact that he is a very tall black guy that is also an albino just lends it this this of course there's going to be a tall overly tall black albino in this town who is not not averse to eating um like you know human flesh you know of course or indeed live rats yeah in this film exactly <laughs> like the like the bag of live rats yeah yeah 
Yeah, no. Um, um, I, again, that's the that's the sort of casting you'd kind of might expect to see in a Lynch movie. It's just like these people who have these just this kind of off kilter presence, and you just think, yeah, I don't, it doesn't matter whether they can really act or not. They're going to bring something to the movie, and it's like, yeah, the guy playing Benny can't really act, but it doesn't matter. That car scene, you know, it's with him playing Wagner and and eating live rats, and it's just such a bizarre scene. Um, and it doesn't really matter that he can't deliver the dialogue properly because that kind of adds to the whole atmosphere of it. Um, I, I mean, the the key scenes. I mean, I you know, it kind of fits in. The, the, there's lots of different scenes I like, but in terms of, you know, very memorable scenes, there's two that stick out to me. Um, that those being um, the the cinema. Um, with which features Joy Bang that we, we talked of and, and the supermarket scene. Um, what, how, I mean, are there any scenes that this kind of stand out to you and what, what do you think about those scenes? Oh, I think, I think those are the, those are obviously like the two set pieces. Um, yeah. and they are very striking, you know, and it's kind of interesting. You, the, the supermarket scene obviously harkens towards Dawn of the Dead that kind of yeah. idea of you know consumerism and zombies and you know it's it's interesting because this does feel like a post night of the living dead movie although uh i i believe willard Hyde claims that he didn't hadn't seen night of the living dead at the time yeah um it is a, it does it does feel like it's a distant relative yes. I and mean, it could be as it is a kind of zombie film. yeah it, it certainly feels like you know uh after night of the living dead obviously kind of changed the genre and this certainly feels like a film post night of the living dead um but yet uh obviously i think anticipates where romero would go next with that one scene it's like dawn of the dead in miniature um but and then also the you know the cinema scene it's i think it's one of the times where he does acknowledge an influence very obviously is the birds you know her sitting yeah, there in the yeah, cinema yeah. and gradually behind yes. her it fills up with zombies you know um and yeah it's it's obviously derived from the birds but it's still brilliantly effective yeah it it's it is really i mean obviously like you said it is the birds but it's it's so it's done so well you don't mind it being an obvious nod and i think the fact that she's sitting there with the you know american flag popcorn yeah. container as well is a really nice sort you of know, image yeah, it's as well really and well just, staged just... and you've got this like sort of you know bizarre uh sammy davis jr western like <laughs> shop of clips on the screen and then when she finally sort of realizes what's going on you get that the very sort of striking staging of it at the end where they sort of where she runs towards the screen and the, they all put the zombies sort of grab her and then you get the sort of hand and the blood on the white screen you know it's it's very well put together as much of it's as it's kind of conceived as a homage in its own right it's a, it's a really well crafted set piece mm. and i i think with the supermarket scene um like you said there are these kind of you know later on we get echoes of it in dawn of the dead you know and i think and in fact when i was kind of uh putting stuff on facebook i, I didn't mention the film we were going to talk about but i just I, I put a still on from the supermarket and i think a lot of people assumed it was dawn of right, the dead, right you know? yeah yeah um well what what i i like about the supermarket scene 
Uh, it is genuinely eerie, and there is this slow build. And I think it, it again, it's it. They make really interesting decisions. Um, a lot of this film, I think, is in the edit. Uh, and I think what the and I think what what the supermarket scene does really well is that we don't we're not necessarily concentrating on the close-up horror of the situation. A lot of the time, what we are concentrating is these these eerie cutaways which is it helps to build the tension it's a really odd thing to think about you'd think you'd focus directly on yeah. the horror but actually by cutting away and having these fairly innocuous shots of a supermarket actually help to build the tension it's really really cleverly done yeah i mean i think it's that's what you know one of the really striking things about the movie is its kind of sense of place and location uh and the way it uses that I think again that's a very art house influence it's very sort of them kind of lifting from antonioni um sort of you know placing actors against architecture and 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 the use of the wide screen and just that kind of sense of composition and environment um it's it's interesting that you know in those days so obviously antonioni was sort of a major figure at that point and was someone who you would see influencing kind of genre cinema early Argento lifts from Antonioni a lot as well and that's not really something you see anymore that's kind of Antonio's somewhat forgotten figure um but I think is if you look at those of the those sort of sort of films were influenced by him back then it, it is a very striking way to approach horror it kind of makes sense that it's been you know this is up until recently a fairly forgotten film which has been influenced by a, another forgotten influence <laughs> it's, it's just a kind of it's a you know it's an enigma wrapped within enigma uh, to coin a phrase um yeah so uh any any other any other bits and anything uh any other business on uh messiah of evil anything you think people should know about this film um i mean i would say i I think it makes a great double bill with another sort of 70s horror movie that was kind of fairly unknown for a long time. I think is somewhat better seen now, I think, because of increased availability, uh, which is Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I think this makes a great yes. double bill with that film. They feel kind of very similar in tone somehow. Um Jessica was released while Messiah was still in production, so it's just one of those kind of odd coincidences of two films coming out that kind of complement each other, but really have nothing, no influence upon each other. Um, and I think they do, they are, they do complement each other nicely. Although I think Jessica is different in the sense that it's again a kind of art house influenced genre movie, but whilst this is the messiah is very sort of as we've said kind of more godardian antonioni influenced jessica's let's go jessica death feels to me like it's more bergman influenced it's still people drawing from the big art house icons of the time but jessica is this very kind of sad autumnal film again based around a female character but is a much more emotional film whereas messiah is kind of more chilly and abstract but yet, I think they do both have this kind of atmosphere 
that make them a really striking double bill. So I'd sort of, you know, recommend to people if they haven't seen either of them, then, you know, that, that, that's, that's a, that's a great evening in if, if a slightly depressing one. Oh God. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, let's scare just to death. I, I just, it's a, that's another great, you know, that is all about the atmospherics. Yeah. It's, it's just, just, just great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I heartily agree. That's a great double bill. And, um, so sh- one I, I was just going to sort of say yeah i mean as we've kind of mentioned you know messiah of evil's been its availability over the years has been very patchy uh it's there's been there's been a couple of blu-ray releases in the u.s which have been sort of limited runs anyway but it's obviously it's finally coming out here in the uk i think i believe in october which is great um and i think it's if i don't know if it still is at the moment but it's certainly been available on shudder as well um so i kind of hope more people will start seeing it and that it will you know possibly finally start to have a bit more of an influence um you know i have seen you know there's been one film recently which is an absolute shall we say deliberate homage to it uh which is off season uh if you watch if you watch off season it is very very much a deliberate nod to messiah of evil and it has it's i I don't think it's anywhere near as successful but it does have quite a strong mood to it it has something of the same kind of liminal atmosphere of this weird little coastal town but it's you know as i say it's definitely someone who's gone all right no one's knocked off messiah of evil i'm gonna do that i'm gonna be the first one to do that and so you know it's uh it's it's worth a look if you like messiah of evil okay so i just need to say uh yeah please follow us on our t for terror facebook page um we have a t for terror i don't know what the hell is it called now is it x twitter whatever it is we've got a t for terror page on that thing and instagram and youtube and all and you can listen to the podcast on various different platforms so please do and give us some feedback uh write us a review tell us what we're doing right etc um and it just remains for me to say thank you to my very very special guest sean hogan thanks for coming on sean thanks for having me and remember to call round next time make yourself at home you're probably dying for a nice cup of tea for terror and remember my friend future events such as these will affect you in the future.